This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Thank you, Jennifer, for that nice introduction. It's a real pleasure to be back here. It's always nice to come and speak to this group. You have really grown. There's a lot of you here. And it's lovely to see how many people are interested in practicing and meditating together, coming together to meditate. Shaila asked me to participate in this series on emotions. I said that I would, and then I, I realized how interesting that is because I'm someone who spent a good part of my life totally disconnected from emotions and, and the recognition of emotions in my life. And so a lot of men are like that without realizing it. I mean, I didn't set out to do that. But in fact, uh, that's what I discovered when I began to practice. And it was through practice, through, through meditating, or trying to meditate, that I first came in touch with emotions. And I have to tell you that they scared the hell out of me. So, so I want to talk a little bit about emotions themselves and, and what they are, and how, how they might be looked at psychologically, and then how emotions might be encountered in our meditations and the interplay of emotions and thoughts and how we bump into our thoughts and recognize our thoughts. I did a little bit of research, and I don't know why I do this because I never follow my notes, but... It occurred to me that in my own meditation practice, that when I practice mindfulness of emotions and mindfulness of thinking, that oftentimes I am able to discern that emotions precede thinking. Emotions arise before thinking and give rise to thinking. I began to think about this a little bit more, and I spoke about this uh, a week or two ago at another group that I was talking to. What I want to do is um, talk about how emotions or thoughts might arise in our experience. It's a little bit sort of rooted in something that's, that's known as Abhidhamma. And without talking about you know, the Abhidhamma systems, what I want to say is that there are levels of, of knowing an emotion or a thought as it begins to arise in our awareness. So the first inkling is a kind of fuzzy stirring where something has connected with a sense door, whether it's a bodily sense door or a mental sense door. And there's the beginning of a knowing of something that's not quite formed. And depending on how strong the contact is with the sense door, we begin to pay more attention to it. Or whatever striking the sense door is of interest to us, so we consciously turn our attention towards it and begin to give it greater and greater attention so that it begins to arise and become more and more clear. Us. Now, this all happens in 
microseconds. It happens so fast that we don't know it's actually happening. But as this awareness begins to form, the mind begins to compare it against other times or other situations where something similar has arisen for us. So the mind begins to compare and the mind begins to say, oh, I recognize this. This is good, this is bad, I like this, I don't like that. Then whatever has struck the sense door, the sensory door, will come into greater awareness and greater clarity. And so there's this kind of second level where most of us operate, most of humanity operates in this sort of second level of knowing. And, and this is a, the way that mindfulness actually unfolds. So I'm only giving this as a background to the way that we become familiar with the arising of emotions as they proceed thinking. So in this second level, there's a greater clarity of the presence of whatever it is that has arisen, whether it's an emotion that we're noticing or a thought that we're noticing or anything else. There's a greater awareness. But at this level, there's still not really clear comprehension. We sort of overlay what's come into our awareness with our preferences and our ideas about things, our expectations, and so on and so forth. So we may have some sort of clarity, but this isn't yet what would be known as right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is full receiving of whatever is happening with bare awareness, absent any kind of concept or story or overlay of preferences. If we consider what I've just said, and we think about the way that we come to know the presence of emotions in our our life. So how do we know that an emotion has arisen? It goes through a process like this, and basically, if it's strong enough, it catches our attention, and there's no way that we can avoid knowing it. Or if it's an emotion that we happen to like, you know, we're going to turn our attention consciously towards it. Ah, love, I like this. And as we turn our attention towards it, it grows and comes into greater and greater awareness. The emotion arises, and basically the way most of us recognize emotions, the way certainly I recognize an emotion, is there's a sense of something in my body. I like it or I don't like it. I think it's, it's scary or it's safe, you see. I feel a contraction or a spaciousness, but I know that an emotion is present because I'm actually sensing it in the body. So when we practice mindfulness of emotions and we're looking at emotions, it's not so much that we're looking with sort of a dry, analytical, um, what's actually going on, as I've just described, sort of the arising of an event in, in awareness. This very systematic, methodical, Burmese, Abhidhamma way of explaining things. But it's rather that we look at it more like it's a sort of a sensory awareness exercise, 
rather than just a purely dry mental exercise. So we, we know emotion through sensing it. It feels a certain way in our body. Emotions can actually be said to be like composite events. We know them through bodily sensations. We know them through you know, the mental realm, through thoughts, through feelings, through motivations, intentions, attitudes. In all of these ways, emotions reveal themselves to us. We begin to notice that emotions have a kind of, uh, it's a, like a projective power over our thinking. They, they precede thinking and they sort of can sort of set the tone for thinking. So if we have um, an emotion that arises that's really powerful, that might be a little bit scary, it can overwhelm us. And so we can notice that we go into a kind of reactive mode and we don't actually, we're not actually thinking clearly then, we're just sort of reacting. You know, you're going through an intersection and you almost get broadsided by another car. Or I had a little fender bender not long ago and it was, it was very insignificant and no one got hurt and there was minimal damage. And yet I didn't realize how it had actually impacted me. Had, it was kind of a shock to me. And you know, I forgot to get the guy's driver's license and telephone number and so on and so forth. And my, it was just like I blanked out in, in a certain way. I, you know, I thought I was going through the steps of doing it, but it was a situation where it just overwhelmed me. Emotions can do that. So if we can begin to look at our emotions, we begin to see that the first read of what's happening can come through turning our attention to the emotion itself. So it can also set the tone for how we think about something and how we create habits of mind that respond to certain things or that respond in a certain way. So in a way, it lays the groundwork for the way we think, which is a little bit unsettling because emotions, at least in my experience, tend to be things that I sometimes am aware of and oftentimes can't control. I want to give you an example, um, a a small example. Over the weekend, I was at a Bayagiri monastery to uh, witness a bhikkhu ordination. A good friend of mine was ordaining as a bhikkhu, and his entire family was there. And before the ordination, they had had a memorial service because he had just lost a brother. Brother died in February or something. And so the family gathered for his ordination, but before the ordination, they did this memorial service. And I didn't really know his brother. I didn't know his brother at all. And his family started to talk about the brother and what a nice guy he was and so on and so forth. And then my friend's father spoke, and he's, he was kind of a big guy and kind of tough, tough guy who would be just kind of tough. If you, I don't know how to say it, but he was trying to like say, oh, life is this way and you know, we have to get along. And then at a certain point, his heart just broke open and he couldn't, he couldn't contain his, his sadness and his grief. 
I was completely stunned because at that point I felt his grief through touching my own sense of grief and loss. And I was really humbled by the power of this kind of a of an emotion and to think about something like that in the in the way that I just described it in this sort of methodical way of of seeing it unfold seems to be you know short of the mark in some way and yet it's a way to understand it but the emotion was so powerful within me that I I had to literally bite my cheek not to not to embarrass myself and it was for this man's grief, this father's grief, that I connected. I think it was an, a, a moment of feeling compassion for him. But in, in any event, this arising of grief and loss was so powerful that it totally overwhelmed me. And at that point, there was a swirl of thoughts, but none of them at all were anything that I could rely on. What I want to uh, say here is that our brains are hardwired to feel emotions and to recognize these emotions immediately before thinking actually happens. And depending on what kind of an emotion it is or you know, the strength of the emotion, thinking might be clear or thinking might be muddled or it may give rise to a kind of proliferation of thinking which can be really distracting, and we can, we can definitely get lost in, in that kind of thing. So it's important to see how we react to emotions when they arise and begin to, and begin to sort of uh, tease out whether there's any pattern in these things and whether the theme that is coming up is to see how it's actually impacting and shaping our thoughts. It's been said that intellectual capacity or intellectual character involves a kind of uh, emotional management. This I'm not sure that I agree with. I understand what the man was trying to point to, but um, I, I think it's not a matter of controlling emotions are thoughts as much as it is a matter of recognizing them. And if you see and know something for what it is, whether it's an emotion or a thought, which is what we're talking about tonight, the pure seeing and recognition of that is all that it takes in order to have some space come up around it and not be tweaked around. And it happens in a gradual way. It doesn't happen immediately. So it's not so much that we're going to clamp down on something and control it or drive it. It's that we're simply going to recognize it and learn how to be with it. I've worked with, uh, I think many of you you know Gil Fronstel, and I've worked with Gil a lot. And Gil basically says that when we begin to recognize our emotions, that we can really have a direct and uncomplicated relationship with them. When that happens, no matter what the emotion might be, it's completely appropriate. There's no 
there's nothing for us to control, there's nothing for us to judge, there's nothing for us to reject. So let me just, let me clarify that. When we're practicing meditation, when we're in a meditative way, in a, a, a meditative posture, so to speak, if you're, you know, in a business meeting and emotions come up, there are emotions that are inappropriate. So, but I'm talking about the ability to recognize and know what's going on in meditation. So all of this is known through mindfulness. When emotions come up, what often happens in meditation is that we reject them, we push them away, we deny them, we d- we're uncomfortable with them, we're afraid of them, and so we just sort of repeat patterns over and over and over again, and we don't see that it's quite possible to simply be with what's happening, be with it absent all of those things. So mindfulness would recognize the emotion. So this emotion has arisen from somewhere in a way that I described in the beginning. Now it's present. And through the application of our mindfulness practice, through the practice of mindfulness of emotions in this case, we come to, how do I want to say it? We come to recognize what's actually there. We come to recognize the emotion. We come to know what's present. And in the knowing of what's present, the tendency to identify with it and therefore be swept away by it is not so great. It, this tendency for identification is loosened. We have a little bit of distance here. And the mind is much more, much more settled because, um, because we're beginning to see things clearly. So we're moving towards what would be known as right mindfulness here. We're beginning to see things as they really are. When we practice uh, what would be called bare awareness of the emotion that's arising and passing away, we recognize the emotion for what it is. So there's this, a simple way to, to do this. It's through rain, I think, something like this. And it's recognition, acceptance, uh, investigation, and naming. Acceptance would be simply allowing the emotion to unfold as it, as it does without rejecting it. Again, I, not to, to talk about my own practice, but sometimes it's useful because a lot of people won't share what really goes on when they're meditating. But I'm quite willing to make a fool of myself. So during the meditation, I, I could be practicing something like mindfulness of breathing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to focus my attention consciously on the breath. And I'm with the breath, and with the breath, and with the breath, and then suddenly, I'm gone, you see. And I don't oftentimes catch when I'm gone, I, I wake up realizing I'm gone. We've been told that that's the first moment of mindfulness. And that's because I've remembered that the object I was with 
originally and have chosen as my object of meditation the breath, I've left. But I've remembered the breath at that point, and so that's the first moment of mindfulness. But immediately, if I watch, even though I'm an experienced meditator and have been meditating for some time, there will often be a judgment about the fact that my mind won't stay with the breath. It'll be like, damn it, again, how, how did that happen? You see, that shouldn't happen to me. <laughs> this kind of judgment is an, an emotion, you see, and that emotion then gives rise to the, these thoughts, like, that shouldn't happen to me, I've been a monk, I've done this, I've done that, I'm this, I'm that. And in the end, it's what a fraud and a phony you are, (laughs) you see? So this isn't very useful thinking. (laughs) All that's happened is that my mind has done what minds do. And to begin to see how these things arise in our own meditations, we can begin to see the very, very same things in the heat of the moment of our daily life, in our relationships with our partners and our colleagues at work, and so on and so forth, because the very same process occurs there as occurs within our meditation. We can begin to see how meditation and daily life actually are one and the same thing. So that nothing that actually occurs needs to be rejected. It only needs to be known. It only needs to be known for what it is. So to go back to my example, if when I wake up, if the first thought is the mind has wandered, period. That's all that happened. The mind wandered and now I'm awake. You see? But then immediately judgment or anger or disappointment or self criticism comes up. You see? So you can see this in your own experience, in your own meditations, and in your daily life. So, from the point of mindfulness practice, when something occurs in our meditations, And in our practice, no matter how we're practicing, there's no need to fight with our experience. In fact, we begin to see that that fighting is a kind of a response that is a habituated habit of mind. And in a way, what what would be called in more traditional and classic you know, Buddhist practice, a defilement of mind. And a defilement not meaning a bad thing or a sinful thing, but something that is misunderstood and therefore keeps us in a kind of state of ignorance, you see. So at that second level of awareness where most people operate, that's still functioning. My mindfulness when I recognize, okay, I'm off my subject, but I'm also judging the fact that I'm off my subject. I'm still in in the second level. I'm not really clearly seeing with right mindfulness what has just occurred or what's happened. So slowly, slowly, when 
we begin to cultivate this habit of whether we're practicing bare awareness or whether we're practicing a conscious, you know, trying to settle the mind and concentrate the mind through focusing on the breath or some other meditation object. It's important for us to realize that we derail our efforts most of the time. We get in our own way most of the time because we're not seeing things clearly and because we're identifying with misunderstanding. So I don't, I don't like the fact that, that I, I can't keep my mind concentrated on my breath. And so I judge myself harshly and therefore... It hurts because I then am identified with being a person who can't concentrate for two minutes or something like that. What happens is that we go through this process over and over and over again. But with mindfulness, we we eventually come to see that nothing needs to be rejected and and there's no reason to condemn ourselves. All we have to do is see, see what's happening. Another thing that I want to um, say and share with you is that I've looked at this issue of putting down wrong views or putting down this resistance with what's actually arising in my experience. And I've grappled with how you let go and how you put it down, you see. Some of you have heard me say, I've had teachers say, well, just let go, just let go. And I say, if I knew how to let go, do you think I would suffer? You know, I don't know how to let go, and you're not telling me how to let go. (laughs) But what I stumbled upon was that seeing and knowing what's occurring, really what's occurring, is the doorway to letting go. Because then I'm not doing anything. I'm not like training myself to control my emotions. I'm simply seeing them for what they are. And in the seeing, there's freedom. In the seeing and knowing, that's the beginning of freedom and that's the beginning of letting go. Because at that point, there's no one to judge. There's nothing to judge. There's only phenomena arising and passing away, whether it's physical phenomena or mental phenomena. It's all phenomena, and it's all subject to the three characteristics that were, were pointed to when we take up this practice. We see that there's the impermanent nature of phenomena arising and passing. We see that in the holding on, our identification with it, there's suffering. And we also see that when things arise and pass away, there's no essential self to be found. Even though we think there's an essential self, there's really not. Because when the emotion passes, if we are that emotion and it's gone, then who the heck are we? So we can begin to see these things in very real and meaningful and immediate ways. That's recognition. So acceptance is basically what I was just telling you. It's when we can meet it and be present with it, we can allow the emotion to arise and pass through us without clamping down or holding on to it. A lot of people think that what happens is that, especially with emotions, 
with thoughts too, but with with emotions. When we don't allow, when we don't see them for what they are, we don't allow them their natural unfolding in us, and so we clamp down on them. And they're held in our physical bodies and in our energetic bodies. And so people do all sorts of somatic work and so on and so forth to release these traumas and stresses. But when you look in the animal kingdom, I've, I've heard this example given, and it's very easy to understand. When you look in the animal kingdom, an animal is, a deer is munching on the grass, and all of a sudden the lion comes up. And the deer is filled with adrenaline and runs away. And if he's lucky, he escapes. And the lion goes away. And then the deer, what does he do? He just goes back to chomping on the grass. He totally lets it go. They don't hold it. They don't have the capacity to hold it. But we do. We get angry or we get frightened and then this thing gets locked in us. It gets locked in our bodies. It gets locked in our, our sort of our, our energy. And it gives rise to the way that we think. It gives rise to how we create habits of thinking, habits of response. So the more familiar we become with emotions which sort of precede thinking, the more possibility we have to cultivate skillful thinking or skillful responses, more skillful responses. Acceptance basically um, is the allowance of the emotion to arise and unfold and move through us in a, in a way without us interfering, misidentifying it and sort of locking it into ourselves. It also allows us to see to see the conditions in which things arise and pass away. It begins, it begins to give us insight into causality, cause and effect, and therefore it begins to deepen our understanding of what's known as kama. So that's all I want to say about acceptance. Then investigation basically... This I talked about a little bit earlier, but it allows us to sort of drop our fixed ideas about something. I should not be a person whose mind wanders off the breath. I am a person whose mind stays with the breath. See, so if I fixate on this, I'm in total delusion. It's so easy. We do this all the time. You know, I am this kind of a person. I'm not that kind of a person. You're this kind of a person, and you're that kind of a person. And the fact is that that's not true. There's behavior, and there's um, a moment-to-moment unfolding of a process that we call ourselves. The people that you were when you walked into this room are no longer. You're no longer that person. That person has come and gone. And the person you were five minutes ago has come and gone. And what you were thinking and feeling five minutes ago has come and gone. And the breath that you were breathing five minutes ago has come and gone. And yet we fixate that this is who we are. I am a person who should not let his mind 
leave the breath, not to pick on myself, but that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make. And so investigation allows us to sort of drop the kind of fixation that we have the response and, re- and reaction that we have to our experiences. And it allows us to investigate this, in this case, this emotion, through sensory awareness rather than through like a mental, a dry mental thing. So basically when we begin to see, oh, this is, this is, this is what love feels like. This is what grief feels like. This is what anger feels like. How do I know I'm angry? Well, I feel angry in my body. It feels a certain way. I'm hot and I'm contracted and I'm frightened and I'm, you see? How do I know that love is present? You know, this feels really good. <laughs> Sign me up. And, and, you know, and by the way, I don't ever want it to leave. So I'm going to hold on tight. And uh, that sometimes is an interesting thing to watch too. So with mindfulness, we simply come to see and know directly what's happening without anything else sort of being added to it. Because what we normally do is we normally have an experience, which I will do this with, and then we respond to this experience this way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.